you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. As we've been working our way through Esther over the last few weeks, um, I think that we have begun to see a theme develop. Um, and that is that God is sovereignly in control and he's sovereignly working out his plan. And so this week you have the king's heart and you have the lot. And both of those things are things that we think are in control, that they are um, they're powerful, um, is the idea. And yet both of those things scripture teaches, and I believe that the passage is working towards the big idea that neither of those things are as decisive or as in control as... They may first appear. If you would, let's read the text. Uh, Esther chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 15. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai, would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were with the king's gate, within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened, when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, and the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, the lots, before Haman, to determine the day and the month, until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hand of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from the hand, his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to the script, its script, and every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written, and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions, a copy of the document was to be issued in law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command. The decree was pro proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was 
perplexed. Father, we do thank you for your control. We thank you for the fact that you have a plan and that you are working out your plan and that your plan is trustworthy, that it is good, and that you will um, bring yourself honor and that you will bring yourself glory through the accomplishments of your plan. We pray that we would be willing to submit ourselves under that plan, even though uh, many times as we look at your plan unfold, it seems confusing to us, it seems perplexing to us, and we are uh, tempted to doubt and to um, seek our own solutions. We pray that we would be loyal servants of yours. In your name we pray. Amen. It's, it, it's interesting. Chapter 3 begins, and uh, the, the big idea of chapter 3, I think, is God controls the decisions, circumstances of life, and circumstances of life for his good pleasure. It's interesting. Chapter 3 begins, and we're seeing this advancement. And if you go back to chapter 2, you would think that we're going to see an advancement of Mordecai. Look back with me at the end of chapter 2, and you'll see why. It's like all of a sudden there's this huge plot twist that you would never expect after you've just read chapter 2. So chapter 2 lists that there's this situation going on and that Esther has become queen. And then after that, there's a second gathering of the virgins. That's where chapter 2, verse 19 picks up. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai, as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed. And both were hanged on a gallow, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so you're expecting, wow, this is, this is so great. Mordecai has just helped the king drastically. If there's advancement to be had, who's going to be at the top of the list to get it? Humanly speaking, you would expect that Mordecai would be the next guy to be promoted. And even later on, as... The king can't sleep, and he's having the history books read to him, and he gets to this section, and he's like, well, what do we do for Mordecai? Well, you didn't give him this promotion. That's not what happened. Instead, you gave it to Haman, and God's yet in control of these decisions, and he is bringing this evil man into power, into a position where he can do great evil but God is using this advancement to accomplish his purpose. He's using this to point his chosen people and to remind you and I that he is in control, that he is taking care of all these things and that none of it is beyond his reach, none of it is beyond his power, none of it is beyond his grasp. And so you have in chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. A new name, a name that we haven't seen in the text yet. And you kind of scratch your head and you're like, where did this guy come from? How did he get there? And people speculate as to exactly what all happened and why it all happened. And I'm not sure it's, it's helpful, but you would think that after the heroic act of Mordecai in chapter 2, that he would expect his advancements. And yet you don't see that. You see God sovereignly choosing to place somebody else into this position of great power. And so 
he comes into power, and as he comes into power, the king proclaims to all the people who sit within his gate that they are to bow down to Haman, and they are to pay homage to Haman. And yet there is this one man who sits within the gate. His name is Mordecai. He is a Jew who refuses consistently to do so. And the other people who sit within the gates go to him regularly and they ask him, Hey, why aren't you following the king's commands? Why aren't you obeying? And the text doesn't really tell us. There may be hints that he's doing it because he was a Jew and he had other beliefs. Or maybe the text is hinting at the fact that he was just a nominal Jew and he really wasn't worshipping anything. It's, it's difficult to be very certain on it. But he doesn't do what the king commands. And so you have Haman, who is advanced, and Mordecai, for some unstated reason, refuses to bow and pay homage to him. And so you have this weird advancement, and humanly speaking, we look at this and it's like, God could have just orchestrated this event so that the more natural person to take over a high position of power would have been Mordecai, and then we could have skipped the rest of Esther and... We would have known that God is sovereign, and yet in God's perfect plan and in his perfect choices, he chose not to do that. He chose to instead use this evil man and his plot, and as God unravels his plan and breaks it completely down, God shows himself to be all-powerful, in control, trustworthy, and faithful. And so the whole story of advancement is an interesting component to the whole story. But as, as this all unfolds, there's these blueprints of destruction, and Haman begins to plan the destruction of Mordecai. And, and in fact, the destruction of Mordecai is not sufficient, because his hatred and his angst with Mordecai's refusals to bow down and to pay homage to him leads him to decide that, you know, it's, it's not worth just killing Mordecai Instead, I'm going to choose to annihilate his entire people group because I'm just that angry with him. And so that part of the story all picks up in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath. There are so many parallels between this and chapter 1. Remember what happens in chapter 1? King Ahasuerus has this great feast to show how powerful and how, how, how strong he is and how wealthy he is. And in the middle of all this, at the very culminating feast where the whole city of Shushan has been invited into the royal palace area, he has one request. His request is that his wife come in to the feast hall, and she says no. And what happens? He's filled with wrath. And he's given advice and he follows it. This powerful king is unable to control his own wife. And he has the, the gall to then tell his people, Men, take control of your households and control your wives and make sure they submit to you. It's, it's really quite humorous. And it, it's done in such a way that it shows us who is actually in control and who is not actually in control. And so you have the, the blueprints of destruction begin to be played out. Verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for 
They had told them of the people of Mordecai and said, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. And so he's beginning to contemplate, make these plans, and as he does so, he's enraged by Mordecai's failure to bow down, and he plans the destruction of all the Jews. And God seems to have his arms tied. That's, that's the idea, right? That's the idea that's continually... You're supposed to feel this emotional angst, I believe, as you read through the text. What, what is the story? What is the background behind the Jews' position? They have disobeyed God and disobeyed God and disobeyed God and failed to live faithfully. God has been faithful. They have failed to live faithfully for so long that God has decided enough. You're being taken into captivity and they're away from home, they're away from their families, they're away from all the ceremonial aspects that they would enjoy as they were at the temple and able to enjoy all those aspects of their religious ceremonies. And God seems distant. God seems to not care. And this, the question that would be in all of their minds as they look at their predicament is, are God's hands tied? Does God care? Can God, can God work in this situation? Or has God abandoned us permanently? And, and so you begin to see this unfold. And all of a sudden there's this great powerful guy. He's writing up the blueprints for destroying the entire nation of Israel. And it appears as if God does not care. That God does not know. And yet that is not what is going to happen. Because... Through this, God is going to bring himself glory. The text moves on, and as the text moves on, you see that God controls the lot. In verse 7, you have this idea come up. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, so this is month one, it's, it'd be like the equivalent of our January, Haman has been plotting and he's getting angrier and deciding that even more so, yes, I'm going to indeed annihilate this people group. And as he makes these plans, he begins to decide that there should be a date that is set to accomplish this task. And so he decides to use the per or the lots to accomplish the decision of this time. And as he goes, it, it's... It's hard to know exactly what's being communicated, but it might be that he like started with like tomorrow and, and rolled the lot. It's like, well, it's not tomorrow. And he kept rolling the lot until he got to like the the twelfth month. That that could be the idea that's being communicated. At the, at the very least, when he rolled the lot, the earliest date possible was eleven months away. And if you have followed through the whole story if you've read it all before you know that you know there's lots of other um high points and low points throughout the story that all the drama that goes with it and what happens is ultimately god uses that time to demonstrate his glory to demonstrate that yes he has not forgotten his chosen people he will come to their deliverance he will protect israel and so the hero of the story is God. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who accomplishes his plans. And so Haman casts the lots, and the lots come out um, 
far later than he would have probably intended that they come out. And if you are familiar with the Proverbs, you probably remember from Proverbs chapter 16, I believe it's verse 33, that, you know, we cast the lots, but who controls the outcome of them? God does. And God is working in this whole situation. Haman thinks that he is consulting his deities, that he is consulting the people who are or the gods who are in influence and who will provide him success. And yet, his plan is going to fail. Why? Because God's ultimately the one who is in power. God is ultimately the one who is in control. But the text doesn't start there, stop there. It, it moves on. And every, every chapter up to this point, we have had uh, a little bit of a picture of King Ahasuerus. And if you remember chapter 1, builds him up just to bring him completely tumbling down. It builds him up as this powerful, rich, wealthy king who you know, pretty much is self-sufficient. And yet the one thing he wants, he can't have. And all of a sudden, this facade that he has comes crumbling down. Chapter 2 does a very similar thing in that this man is wealthy beyond imagination. And he has all the trappings that royalty could ever desire. And, and a huge harem to boot. And what happens? There is this plot to take his life and it completely goes over his head. And who is it that comes and saves him? It's, it's Mordecai. And so once again, you have the king who appears to be large, appears to have it all put together, all figured out, and he comes crashing down. Why? Because King Ahasuerus is not the ultimate sovereign in the story. Haman is not the ultimate sovereign. Esther is not the ultimate sovereign. Mordecai is not the ultimate sovereign of the story. The ultimate sovereign in the story of Esther, the ultimate sovereign in your story and in my story is God. And so the story introduces us to God controlling the king's heart. So in verse 8, Haman goes to King Ahasuerus. And it's interesting, he, he understands how to tell a story. Because he starts off with some half-truths and some truths. And as, as Haman talks more and more, he begins to remove more certainties and more truths and puts in a couple more lies. And so he begins in verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed. That is about the only true part of his whole statement. Nothing's, nothing's wrong about that. They are scattered. They are dispersed. That is God's judgment on them. The people in all the provinces of your kingdom, their laws are different from all our people's. And they do not keep the king's laws. It's like a blanket statement. They don't keep any of your laws. And that can't be true. I mean, there has to be some moral laws that they would have that they would follow. But he's just going from, you know, here is a certain truth. And as he works his way through this, by the time he's done with verse 8 and verse 9, he's in all sorts of lies. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into 
the king's treasuries. Haman goes and he lies about the Jews and then he offers a royal sum to pay for the extermination of the Jews. Commentators have debated, but it, it, is, it is likely that the sum he's offering is upwards towards two-thirds of the Persian Empire's annual income. That's a lot of money. I don't know exactly how much that is, but I mean, just, that's a lot of money. Because to run a government the size of Persia would be a whole lot of money, especially when you take into consideration like the king's own multiple trappings and delicacies and luxuries that he has. And then you know that everybody that's under him, you know, at the highest ranks are getting very similar benefits and it just goes down. And so this is a huge sum of money and he comes in and he's just like, I'll, I'll give you all this money for the benefit of the nation if you'll just allow these people to be exterminated. And it's, it's likely that maybe Haman hated them that much that he was willing to give this much money or maybe he knew that the Jews were quite wealthy people and were people of significant power within the kingdom. There are numerous resources and first-hand witnesses that tell us about various Jews who had influence, who had wealth within the Persian government. So that's, that's possible that he was thinking, you know, I'll pay all this money, but I'll recoup a lot of it as my minions go forth and they bring me back great wealth from these exterminated Jews. That, that could be what he's thinking here. But either way, he, he's just really, really concerned about exterminating these people. And remember, this is the king that's all-powerful. He's all-sufficient. He's wealthy. He has it all put together. And what happens? Every time you have an aide of the king speak, what does the king do? He does what the aide says. Every single time. He... he he gets upset with Vashti, and his aide comes and says, well, we need to find you. We, we, need to, we need to sack Vashti and not let her be queen anymore. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm kind of sad about what I did in chapter 2. I shouldn't have done that in chapter 1. Well, here we got a new plan. And the new plan is we'll get a whole other bunch of girls, and you can find a queen from among them. Okay. And, and so we have a problem presented that's not really a problem. And a solution presented, and the king's like, okay. And he just goes ahead with it. And so the, the all-powerful king is not actually in control. Why? Once again, scripture tells us that it's not that the king actually controls what happens. God is sovereign in control, and God is directing his steps. God is controlling what happens to the king. and God is guiding him and leading him how he wants him to go. So the king is once again easily swayed by the advisor. In verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. The complete disregard for human life is amazing. I mean, you list things in like priority list, right? Like the money is the highest priority thing here. The money and the people are given to you. Like, without even, like, thinking about it, it almost seems. Like, this guy that's supposed to be so powerful, that's what we think of kings as, 
this period is so very weak in every one of the chapters we go through. He seems to have absolutely no backbone and no ability to think through an issue with any sort of logical complexity. It's just amazing. And why is that? It's because God is using the story to teach us about who he is and to teach us that because he is faithful, because he is in control, you and I, as we go through trials, as we go through difficulties, we can trust him. And so... Verse 12, Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and the decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, the governors who were over each province, the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old little children and women, in one day on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The courier went out hastened by the king's commands, and the decree was published in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed, or confused like what in the world what just what just happened this king he just <clears throat> any idea works for him like and the king's in his palace drinking and and here is the city of the capital just sitting there scratching their heads going man we got a bad king this is this guy doesn't make any sense what happened? Why are we... How did this come about? What's so bad with the Jews? And what is the text doing? The text is showing us that God's controlling the king. The king is not the ultimate sovereign. The proclamation is announced and the city is in utter confusion. And so once again, at the end of the chapter, the king that we saw at the very beginning of chapter one, and you're like, this is the guy I want to be. He is powerful. He is wealthy. He has everything together. No, no, this is not who I want to be. Because this guy is not in control. He doesn't have it all together. Why? Because God is in control, and God does have it together. And so, whose side are you on? Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the, the, the leaders today that provide you counsel that is contrary to God's word? Or are you going to submit yourself to God's word and follow it and go to it for guidance and counsel? I think that is the idea that you and I are faced with. I think it is the idea, the concept, the question that the original readers and hearers of the story would have had to ask themselves. Where are we going for counsel as exiles? As people who are alienated from the promises of God, from our 
fellowship and our communion with God through the temple as people who are not in the promised land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As people who do not enjoy the monarchy of a king like David. To where will we go for guidance? To where will we go for answers to the perplexing situations of life? Like a king who is so easily swayed by any piece of advice that an advisor provides him. I think that is, that is the question that Esther continually brings forward to us. Who are you relying upon? Who are you trusting? And so the text ends, and I think that there, God is not confused, God is not caught off guard. And I think that the text, as it continues to unfold, and the following chapters is going to continue to demonstrate this, that God is not surprised by these events. God is orchestrating these events to point his people to him and to point them to their need of him, to bring them back to faithfulness and obedience to him. The text, I believe, provides us with a couple of different theological components, theological ideas that uh, we can look at and see in the text. God advances those who will promote his ultimate purposes. And I think that Haman is doing that. He's doing that in a way that's, you know, a bad way. But God is using the bad, evil plan of Haman to make the contrast between what would be, humanly speaking, the natural result of this. Because, humanly speaking, the natural result of Haman's declaration that everybody in town is supposed to go attack the Jews would result in the annihilation of the Jews. Because there's not enough Jews to fight off the whole town. And yet, by the end of the story, what happens? It's no longer that, you know, the king Ahasuerus is feasting. It's no longer that, you know, Queen Esther is enjoying the delicacies of being a queen. It's no longer that, you know, Haman is feasting and enjoying a drink with King Ahasuerus. Instead, what happens? At the end of the story, God is glorified, and the people of Israel, the Jews, are the ones who are feasting, and they establish a feast to memorialize God's care and protection of their lives. So God advances those who will promote his ultimate purpose. Sometimes those people are evil people. God works through unbelievers as he directs them. And so as we think about the political atmosphere in our own nation, there are, there are people that you and I would not prefer be in control because of the many policies that they promote and will promote over the coming years. And yet God is working through them to accomplish something. We, we don't have the full story. Unfortunately, God hasn't given us the, you know, the United States version of Esther so that we can look back on and go, you see all these like really, really silly stories and how these plans just completely fall apart and how ultimately God is glorified through these evil actions. We don't have that. And yet we can look back on Scripture and as we see God's consistent character unfold through the pages of Scripture, we can look at the situations that we face Today, the trials that we'll face tomorrow, and we can say that God will be faithful still. Why? Because that is who He is. 
what we will call what we, what we call chance is God's sovereign control. And God controls the king's heart. And, and so as we think about some of these ideas, some some ideas for how we can practically live out these truths is you and I should rejoice in God's plan as it unfolds. God's plan is unfolding and it will continue to unfold. And as we look on at it, sometimes it doesn't make sense. But God is accomplishing his good purposes. And so as we look on, we rejoice that God is still in control, that God has this all mapped out, and he is going to bring himself honor and glory through the circumstances that he allows him to live. You and I have been placed in different circumstances. And as we reflect on the fact that God promotes people, he places people where he has them to accomplish his plan, to serve his agenda. It raises the question, how is God seeking to use you where he has placed you right now? Are you using your time wisely as you engage with other believers at church? Are you using your conversations to stir one another on to love and to good works? Are you using your time to instruct and to encourage faithfulness and obedience? Is your time used in a way that is faithful and obedience to God's plan? In addition, I think that as we look back and we experience trials and we experience heartache and difficulties in this life, we can look on those and confidently assert that this did not take God by surprise. We may be very much like the people of Shushan and look at this and go, the king is drinking with Haman, and all of this is very perplexing. All of this is super confusing. What is wrong with this guy? Every time an advisor comes, he does something stupid again. And you may look at the events of your life and be like, this is all very perplexing. This all doesn't make any sense. And yet, we know the consistent character of our God that says that he is in control and he is using that to accomplish his good purpose and he will bring himself honor and glory through the situation you find yourself in. And so as you find yourself in trying situations, and that doesn't mean you have to be a really big trying situation. A trying situation may be that your toddler is, you know, throwing a fit at the dinner table and thought that the pumpkin pie was going to be a chicken pot pie. It happened this week. It was, it was super trying. I mean, these are the trials of life of, you know, toddler dads and moms and, and grandparents that get to live with them. Okay? And... In the midst of that situation, did God sovereignly ordain that, you know, she would be confused by the fact that, you know, chicken pot pie is not pumpkin pie? Yeah. Do, do I understand what exactly was being accomplished through that? No, I don't. I don't understand. And that, that wasn't even the worst, you know, event of last week. Um, but God is sovereignly in control of the big events and the small events. And then finally, God's plan is certain. So seek to follow his plan. Seek God's guidance. I think the question that the Jews are supposed to ask themselves is, who are we trusting in? 
Are we following the Lord in faithful obedience as he is faithful to us, even in the midst of the trying circumstances that we face because of our unfaithfulness? Where do we go for counsel? Where do we go for guidance? And the answer that I think Ruth, or Esther is teaching us time and time again is that we go to the Lord because he is sovereign, he is in control, he is faithful, and we are not. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your sovereign control. We thank you that you control the lot, that you control the king, and that as a result we can humbly trust you and seek to serve you in the midst of the trials and difficult circumstances that you choose to place us in. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.